Welcome to the Trainer's Bullpen, where trainers in the law enforcement space come to hear experts talk about their work, experience, and research into human performance, particularly as it relates to the critical aspects of training motor learning and crisis decision-making. The purpose of the Trainer's Bullpen is to help bridge the gap between law enforcement training and the findings of academic research and current pedagogical best practice. Our desire at the Trainer's Bullpen is to help advance law enforcement training, make research applied, and improve officer and public safety. The Trainer's Bullpen is a production of Raptor Protection, and I'm Chris Butler, your host. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Trainer's Bullpen. In this interview, human performance expert Dr. Rob Gray from Arizona State University and author of How We Learn to Move and Learning to Optimize Movement, discusses the important findings of the research paper, Police Training Revisited, Meeting the Demands of Conflict Training in Police with an Alternative Pedagogical Approach. This article was published in the journal Policing in December of 2020. And you can access this article by going to the Trainers Bullpen website at trainersbullpen.ca. While operational police actions place high demands on police officers and training should be providing the skills necessary to meet those demands, the research shows that there is a significant problem. And that problem is evidenced by a large gap between the current training methodology and the lack of retention and transfer of skills. A serious call to action for the reimagination of police training is discussed along with the introduction of the constraints-led approach to motor skills training. This holds great promise for improving police training. And it's my pleasure to welcome back to the show, Dr. Rob Gray. Well, Rob, welcome. Welcome back. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, so I I just want to do a little bit of introductions uh, for you because in case viewers didn't didn't see the last uh, podcast or the last video that we did. So originally from Toronto, uh, Canada. Hey, fellow Canadian. (laughs) Yeah. Is BA we're inside. everywhere. We're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. At Queen's University and his MS and PhD in experimental psychology at York University. After receiving his PhD in 1998, he worked as a research scientist for Nissan Motor Corporation in Cambridge, Massachusetts. In 2001, Rob was appointed as the assistant professor in the newly formed applied psychology program at Arizona State University. In 2006, Rob was appointed the Associate Professor and Program Head. Since 2005, he has also worked part-time as a research psychologist for the United States Air Force. From January to June of 2010, he was appointed as the Visiting Professor in Sports Science at the University of the Mediterranean in France. From 2010 to 2014, Rob was the Associate Professor in Perception and Action in the School of Sport exercise and rehabilitation sciences at the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom. Rob's research focuses on perceptual motor control with particular emphasis on the demanding actions involved in driving, aviation, and sport. His goal is to conduct basic research that can be applied towards the improvement of training, simulation, accident prevention, and human-machine interface development. In 2007, he was awarded the Distinguished Scientific Award for Early Career Contribution to Psychology 
from the American Psychological Association and the Earl Alusai Award for Early Career Achievement in the Field of Applied Experimental and Engineering Psychology. Now, in 2015, Rob started the Perception Action Podcast. The podcast explores how psychological research can be applied to improving performance, accelerating skill acquisition, and designing new technologies in sport and other high-performance domains. It covers disciplines including sports science, psychology, human systems, engineering, sport analytics, human factors, neuroscience, and cognitive science. The podcast reviews basic concepts and discusses the latest research in these areas, and it's tar targeted at academics, researchers, coaches, performance analysts, technology developers, and students working and studying in these areas. And Rob, I can also say, having listened to your Perception Action podcast for over the last year, it is also very geared towards law enforcement trainers looking at how to understand training approaches, the ecological approach to training uh, those motor skills that police officers need. So I'd encourage our listeners to check out the Perception Action podcast. It's found at perceptionaction.com. So, okay, Rob, well, welcome back, as I said before, and and uh, this was basically what we're going to look at today was your recommendation after we met the last time and had a discussion about linear and nonlinear training from uh -huh. a knife defense study. Uh, you forwarded to me this study and felt that it would be worthy of discussion and, and very relevant to trainers. So the study we're going to look at today is called... Uh, dissecting or we're going to look at police training revisited meeting the demands of conflict training in police with an alternative pedagogical approach now this was published by corner and staller in the journal policing in december of 2020 so rob let let's start with this study uh what were the researchers looking at what were they exploring and and basically why did you feel that this would be a great study for us to look at today. Yeah, I thought it was a good um, follow-up to the one we did last time because it's focused um, more on kind of using constraints. I think in the last one, we, the, the last study we looked at last time, it, they, they had a constraints approach to defending knife attacks. And I, I think I said in my, and then when I reviewed it, I, I wasn't entirely thrilled with the way they did that. So I thought this was a good way to get introduced that key concept of constraints-led approach. Okay, great. Um, so, and and we're we're probably going to spend the bulk of our time actually talking about the constraints led approach and what that even means because this is going to be foreign terminology to most trainers mm -hmm. who are going to listen to this. So, um, first, let's start with just defining some terms, though, Rob. Because yeah, one of, sure. yeah, one of one of the things right in the title of of the paper it says an alternative pedagogical. <laughs> So, I mean, I know what alternative means and I know what an approach <laughs> means, uh, but help our listeners with what's pedagogical. So pedagogical basically refers to teaching, how you teach it. Um, um, I'm always, I don't, I know, I tend to avoid using that word. I know it, it, it's someone with, it does have difference in meaning from teaching, but I think it's like a thousand dollar word when a one dollar word would do, right? Yeah. So they're talking about how we teach you know, skills and, and police skills. Yeah. 
Okay, so a pedagogical yeah. approach then would be basically like it's your methodology, is it, yeah, of how exactly. you teach something. Yeah. So I have information or a skill that I want to teach somebody. Mm -hmm. The way that I impart or introduce that knowledge or that skill, my method in doing that, that would be my pedagogical approach. Yes, yeah, 100%. Yeah, and you're kind of within that, your philosophy about how you teach people and things like that. Yeah. Sure. Okay, so an example of really uh, two different types of pedagogical approaches is one would be, so if we take, for example, linear that we looked at last time, linear and nonlinear, if I use a linear approach, meaning it's very technique focused, it's very, mm -hmm. you know, static, if this, then this type of training, mm -hmm. um, that's a, a linear approach mm -hmm. or versus nonlinear, which is more, the student is going to be doing their own um, self-organization, their mm -hmm. own uh, looking at the, the, their the task and choosing their own solution fixes for those challenges that they're faced mm -hmm. with. So those are, that would be an example of two vastly different pedagogical approaches. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we're going to, I think we'll get more into, into the pedagogy because they, they, they talk a lot about it and the importance of, of that approach. Um, so let's just put this right out there at the very beginning. Um, the authors make a very bold statement uh, right in the, in the abstract of the paper. And they say, uh, and they assert that there presently exists a problem in police training. And this is the problem that they say. They say the problem is that there's a lack of transfer between the current police training environment and the operational environment. So Rob, what's your take on that? Like, uh, so that bold statement, is that something that is a problem that we see in training and coaching? Like, what are they talking about there? Yeah, the problem of transfer is something we see a lot in a, not only police training, but across a lot of, it's uh, how can we take, does what we learn in practice and in training actually show up in the real scenario, in a real conflict situation? Um, you know, does hitting a baseball off a tee make you hit better in a game? And what we find is a lot of training, you know, and it's not often assessed directly. Like someone will come up with a new technology or, or practice drill and they'll show it, but they don't actually measure where, whether it makes you better on the field or in the situation. And what all the research shows is it's very hard to actually get transfer effectively, um, you know, um, especially if you get too far away from the actual thing. Yeah. So it's a really, it's a very important concept. And it is true. A lot of the things we do, I don't think transfer very well. Now, and I suppose that, you know, there are, when you look at the sporting domains, there are some where transfer is probably easier and to measure and it's easier to transfer especially when there's like clearly defined rules and it's not such an open uh skill environment versus like in say baseball or football where even though there's still rules and a field that doesn't change but it's a constant dynamic open environment so um you know in policing rob i think this is one of the biggest concerns that trainers ought to have is because we're we're training officers to be able to respond in in 
very often very violent, rapidly unfolding, extremely close, high consequence events where there are no rules. Yeah. And and the environment is constantly changing. So transfer in the law enforcement world, I think, is extremely problematic because how do we how do we then have a, a pedagogical approach that we can train our officers in that will at least maximize or optimize the transfer to those? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, like something like working on your shooting accuracy on a gun range where you have a stationary target, well lit, no consequences if you miss. You sh There's no decisions about when to shoot or not. Uh, how well does that transfer to actual real situation where you're high emotion, <laughs> have to make a decision, you might not be able to see clearly, right? And usually the, the answer is it doesn't <laughs> transfer very well. Um, if you have too far, the conditions are too controlled and simple in practice, they don't transfer to those complex situations. Okay, so Rob, are there general principles that a trainer or a coach considers when trying to optimize transfer of a motor skill? Like, is there general accepted principles of how the training should be set yeah. up? Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's this concept sometimes referred to as representative design, right? So um, the idea that there's certain key things that need to be there to increase the likelihood of a transfer. We can't guarantee it always, but um, so the first thing is, it doesn't have to be exactly the same. Obviously, we can't recreate a real, especially the emotion and anxiety you feel in a real situation. There's no way we can recreate it to that level in training. Um, but what we want there, we want to make sure the information, you're making decisions, right? You're not just doing a pre-programmed action. You're using the same information about, so whatever information you use to guide the action is there in the practice rather than some fake thing like a bullseye or like, you know, that's not really. Um, and then, you know, I think the emotional component, as much as you can, creating pressure, creating consequences for missing, you know, um, so there's some key things we want there. And the basic, you know, it doesn't make people happy. The basic law of transfer is you have, has to be pretty similar, right? Like, the, like hitting a softball does not transfer to hitting a baseball very well, even though it's highly, highly similar. It's just underhand and bigger ball, but it doesn't seem to, you have to have very, very similar things in practice to, they don't have to be exactly the same, but they have to have key elements. Yeah. Okay. And so then what in training, is there a role that uh, attention plays? And I know this is kind of off topic of, of this study, mm -hmm. but while we're on it, because I, I've often heard other coaches and trainers talk about the difference between an internal focus of attention and an external focus of attention and mm -hmm. how that also relates to learning and transfer of mm -hmm. a skill. So what can you say about the role of attention? Yeah, yeah, it seems so. Internal focus of attention is focusing on what your body's doing, you know, whether your arm's at your side, how flexed is your wrist. And external focus is focusing more on the environment or the effect your movement's having on the environment. And there's actually almost 25 years of research now showing the clear benefits of an external, right? Internal gets you all thinking about what you're doing, your mechanics and your technique. 
which gets people to be kind of clunky. <laughs> and then also they're not paying attention to what's going on around them as well. So as much as you can, we try to, like when you're referencing someone, you know, talk about pushing, pu push off from the ground rather than flat push your foot, right? So the ground is an external object and say your foot with internal. Um, so, and trying to direct your attention to the environment, right? So, which is very different than traditional coaching, right? Where we talk about your body the whole time. Um, but the research shows that getting people to focus outwards and kind of letting your body do its own thing is is very beneficial. Okay. Mm -hmm. So as a, as a firearms trainer, for example, that if I'm getting officers to learn to shoot, to draw, the, to draw their firearm, for example, if I'm focusing on the draw stroke, if I'm having them, if I'm talking to them about, you know, the feel of, of their hand on the grip and the, and the feel of what it's like to release the retention mechanisms and what mm -hmm. all, if I have all of those internal sort of focuses, that is not as desirable as to having them maybe yeah. fixated on the, on the threat. So as they're externally threat focused and they're thinking of the goal and the action rather than the individual yeah, yeah, and even just focusing more on the gun, the external object too is fine. Just not focusing on what your body's doing so much, you know, pull the, you know, so any kind of external object. Mm -hmm. Okay, all yeah. right. So, um, so th there, there's probably a lot we could talk about uh, optimizing training for yes. making yes. transfer happen. Yeah. And as as I'm talking, uh, that might be an excellent. <laughs> Yes, um, this has a little bit of that in there, but yeah, that's a whole kind of separate topic that a lot of people have worked on. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Okay, so let's let's get into this idea of a constraints-led approach because this is one thing that, that the authors also say in their abstract is that the constraints-led approach or CLA, uh, we can call it, would help make the leap between training and good operational performance. And so there's a gap that they're talking about. We've got the training and then we've got the operational need in the in the criterion environment. And they're saying, so this constraints-led approach is going to help bridge that gap between training mm -hmm. and the street. So uh, I think we need to start with, you. you've got to help us with the constraints-led yeah. constraints approach, Rob. What is it? Where did it come from? Mm -hmm. How was it used? Sure. Like, just go with it. So it starts with the idea that whenever we perform a skill, there's a lot of different options, right? So I could shoot a gun with my elbow bent 90 degrees, my arm straight. I could put my hand on my other hand on my wrist, other hand on the forearm. Like, so there's multiple different ways I could do any action, right? Um, the and the problem with challenges like when you're learning what which one of those do i do or which one do i use one? and so a constraint is something that takes away one of the possible solutions from us right um and so the, it, it's in kind of kind of paradoxically it helps us <laughs> right by it sounds bad i'm constraining you but by i'm actually helping you by taking something away so so there's three basic types of constraints. There's individual constraints that we bring ourselves, right? There's only certain things I could do with my my body. Like I can't, like if I'm, if for example, if I was very weak arm, I probably couldn't shoot one-handed without supporting, right? 
Um, I don't have my individual constraint of arm strength maybe is not going to allow me to use that solution. So I have to support with my other hand. Um, then there's uh, the constraints of the environment, right, which are like light level, wind. And then there's the, what we call task constraints, which is what um, the situation and the, the coach. So in the constraints that approach, what we're going to do as a coach is we're deliberately going to add something that takes away a particular solution we don't like or don't want you to do and encourages you to do something else, right? So we're going to add something to the environment that um, kind of help guide you to finding a different way to do the action. That's the basic idea of it. Yeah. So I, the example I use in my sport, I work in, in baseball, in, in pitching, in baseball pitching. Um, we have a lot of young athletes that come up and they come up with a solution of when they're pitching, they separate their arm from their body really early. And that puts a lot of stress on their elbow, increases the chance they could get injured. So what I do is I add the constraint. I put a big ball, yellow uh, rubber ball under their arm while they're throwing. And I tell them they have to throw so that the yellow ball, when it falls out, goes forward, right? So what I've done is if they separate their arm now, the ball just falls out and goes sideways. So I've added a constraint that takes away that solution of separating your arm early and encourages them to do something else. So the constraints that approach is really a way to guide a person to move, have an effective solution without telling them exactly what it is. <laughs> We're just kind of pushing them, you know, with these constraints. So that's the, the idea. Well, that's why it's called a constraint, why it's a constraints that approach. And there's lots of different ways you can use constraints in, in teaching. Okay, so you mentioned in individual constraints is is one of them so there's kind of, there's sort of a triangle of the constraints led approach right there's individual yeah, yeah. and uh task and environmental so you've given us an example about uh how you can change the individual constraint um how about the task and the environment how, how can how do coaches or trainers impact those two areas yeah, so the task, you know, you could is kind of, for example, a simple example of a constraint is how big the target is, right? Um, so with a new learner, right, you would change the target size as a constraint to make it more easy for them to achieve some success, right? And then as you got more and more, um, but when you have a really big target, then you really don't, you can really shoot hit the target lots of different ways, right? Lots of different techniques. Um, but as I, as I, so once you do that, it kind of gets some proficiency, then I can make the target smaller and smaller. And now it's putting more demands on you to come up with a, a better movement solution. So target size is one of them. Um, you could have, add some start time you know, things where I don't have to shoot, I have to make a decision. Um, you could add time, like how long you have to shoot as a task constraint. How many targets are you have to pick between? So it's kind of any kind of um, aspect of the task um, that you can change, um, you know, as a coach. So it's really that's what your main, the main thing you're manipulating as a coach is or a trainer is task constraints. You really don't have a lot of control of the, in, the individual. You can go send them to the weight room and suggest they do these exercises to get stronger, more flexible. Uh, but in the actual training scenario, it's mostly task constraints. Okay. 
Now, can a trainer change individual constraints by, um, like if I put my trainees through a, a 10 or 15 minute high intensity training circuit to jack up their physiology, get their heart rate up, would that would that be an example of changing the individual constraint or the task? Yeah, constraint? no, that that's a great example. That's an, a good example of when you can in uh, individual constraints. So I, that's one I like to use a lot in the sports training is I get you fatigued. You know, so if I want you to be able to shoot accurately in basketball in the fourth quarter, uh, in practice, I'll make you run a bunch of laps, then come shoot, <laughs> right? So you, I've got you pre-fatigued. Now you have to figure out how to keep moving successfully when you're fatigued. Yeah. Okay. What would the benefit of that be? Of, of that kind? Of fatigue. Like why, why, why would you do that to a performer to fatigue them? Yeah. So basically the idea of constraints is we want you to learn to kind of adapt. So how can I keep, how can I keep shooting accurately when my legs are a bit tired, which of course might actually happen in the real game, right? As the game you get in the, what do I need to do differently now if I can't jump as high or, you know, have a, you know, so it's basically making the athlete or the performer adaptable, right? You know, on a, in a in a shooting task, if I lower the light level, right, making you ch learn how to adjust what you're doing to satisfy that constraint. Um, so it's it's giving you kind of new problems to solve <laughs> in a way, and making you you more uh, yeah. Rather than teaching you the one way to do it, I want to kind of challenge you to be able to do it in lots of different situations and conditions. Okay, so Rob, why why should we use a constraints led approach? I mean, what what, where does this come from? What does the research show as to why why it's superior? What's the alternative? Like, is there something that is is consistently used in sporting that isn't a constraints led approach? Like, yeah. So, so yes. Um, so, constraints led approach. The key kind of idea behind it is the the self organization. I'm gonna let you figure out on your own how to shoot when you're tired, right? I'm not. The alternative is the the more traditional kind of prescriptive instruction. So when uh, you know where the I so constraint one way to think of it is constraints that approach is giving the athlete or the learner problems to solve, right? Keep shooting accurately in low light. Keep shooting accurately in, when you're fatigued. Whereas traditional coaching is giving the solution, right? I'm going to tell you you need to keep your arm straight. You need to do this. You need to do that. Um, so, um, which, so you're prescribing the, the answer to the person and having them repeat it over and over. Um, and there's a quite fair amount of research in sports and well, kind of the one we talked about last week too, uh, last time with the knife defense uh, that shows um, constraints seems to be a superior in the long run to just telling the person what to do through instruction and correction and things like that. Yeah. And is that result consistent across the research? So when you look at, like, is it used in other domains other than sporting? Do we see the constraints-led approach used in, say, training uh, trauma surgeons? Or you have experience in the Air Force. Um, is a constraints-led approach used to teach skills in flying an aircraft? Like, do we see that consistent positive? Um, it has started to go, I know, like in training musicians and uh, in, um, I think some kind of aviation related tasks. Yeah. 
Um, it's mostly in sport. The, well, that's, I guess, what I'm aware of. <laughs> I keep kind of keep a running track of research studies that compare uh, constraints that approach to other methods. And But most of what I keep an eye on is sports-related ones. But I know, like, in martial arts, uh, so, so something a bit closer to police, um, it's it's there's some evidence for it as well, but it, it is mostly sports is it, that it's come up up in. But the basic idea is actually a lot of people have been. So one of the things I like about it is a lot of good trainers and coaches have been using it for a long time. They just don't call it that, <laughs> right? It's just kind of putting a theory and a terminology on something. Good, a lot of good coaches have been doing for a long time. Yeah, yeah, right. So it, it's kind of codified what. Mm -hmm. The, the the best practices have been that a lot of, like you said, very experienced uh, coaches have been using. And, you know, as I start to embed uh, my mind more and more into the constraints-led approach and the ecological approach, and having read your book, How We Learn to Move, and and I, I start to reflect on my 25 years of law enforcement training, and I've seen what's occurred to me is I can think what comes to mind is many trainers over those years who were doing this. Now they mm -hmm. probably, if you were to ask them, they wouldn't use no. using a constraints led approach, but they seem to intuitively, they're just such excellent trainers. Uh -huh. They know that this system produces better results. A hundred percent. That's what I see almost every sport I work. I work a lot across a lot of different and really good coaches kind of figure they great experimenters right they've learned kind of the same thing and and so what what we're trying to do here with is kind of yeah put a theory on explain why it works and also i think it helps give an understanding how to where to go next like what other types of constraints can we use and and things like that but you're right there are so many coaches that have great ability to do these kind of things already yeah okay so i guess is one of the principles of a constraints-led approach. So if I am a, a constraints-led approach trainer and I'm re I've really bought into this, so when I'm manipulating these constraints, should some of the guiding principles be that I always, if I'm going to manipulate a re uh, constraint, whether that's a task environment or a performer, I I should be able to draw a, a objective connection to the task environment, right? Like, that I'm changing something for the purpose of creating a, mm -hmm. my student to be able to self-organize in mm -hmm. order to meet a task demand. Like I'm just, I just don't come up with. Yeah. So there's actually a couple different ways. So there's maybe we could do a separate one of these one time. There's, there's another method called differential learning, which is really just adding, changing the constraints to just give lots of variation without really a clear, purpose like because variability is good so making you shoot from different angles different light levels different distances we know that's really beneficial for learning um so you could just vary those randomly and have no particular reason why that's called di a differential learning constraints that approaches yeah constraints that approach the way i think of it is is exactly how i'm changing or adding something because i want for a specific purpose like the student i'm working with is that inaccurate because the they don't control the barrel right at the fire. So I'm going to add a constraint to try to deal with that specific problem, right? Or they don't, their stance, their interact, their stance is poor, right? So I think of constraints that approach, yeah, is more trying to address 
something in particular, trying to change what they're doing now and, and encourage them to do something different because what they're doing now is not really working very well. Yeah. Okay. And so does it always have to be that something they're do doing now isn't working well, or could it be that maybe we're at a basic level of training where they're actually performing quite well, but now I'm going to manipulate some constraints to add pressure and increase those uh, desirable difficulties to, mm -hmm. to, to push them into higher levels of performance and maybe even making mistakes that they need to learn from? A hundred percent. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think we can get like just good enough, right? When you first learn people learning a skill, you, you get something that works and it's okay. But then if you really want to optimize and get to the next level and be elite, yeah, you sometimes you got to push people away from that. And by challenging, you know, like I said, with, like with the, um, like the example, back to my baseball, like if I have people throwing really slow, like a low, velocity, there's lots of ways you could throw a ball 50 miles an hour, right? You can throw a sidearm. If I'm getting you to try and throw 95, <laughs> there's not very many ways you can do that. Same with a, like hitting a really small target and shooting. You can have a lot of slop in your, <laughs> like you have, there's certain th things that have to be there. So yeah, so I think using a constraint to get a person to another level of performance um, and be able to handle more variations and conditions for sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's a great intro to the constraints-led approach. Let's look at some of the uh, results or some of the things from this study then. And it was interesting to me that when the when this the authors looked at the individual perspective of the officers that were going through the training, the students, as well as the trainers, one of the things they mentioned was that they both, both the students and the trainers, perceive that the main cause for the lack of retention and transfer of skills was the lack of time, the lack of time. And now I can tell you, Rob, this is one of the most common things that I hear from trainers saying, we need more time. We need more uh -huh. time, uh, our officers. So we have, for example, when you look at the statistics of shooting accuracy in the line of duty in officer-involved shootings, they're anywhere between 30 and 50%. So uh -huh. it, it's really bad. Uh -huh. uh, and so the uh, of most firearms trainers will say, well, in order to fix that, we need more time. But uh -huh. the problem is doing the same thing that you've been doing, just doing more of it. Yeah isn't going to necessarily result in a better outcome and it's the same for combative skills mm -hmm. so um is there more reps yeah yeah more, yeah more reps more reps um yeah. so of course more time to train like as a trainer i i always want more time to train mm -hmm. and we hope that that would be beneficial but that's not what these authors say is causing the poor performance the poor transfer so Let's talk about like back to the whole, uh, I guess, the pedagogy, the the training methods. Mm -hmm. What would you have to say about, you know, as you look at this study, um, what would be your input around like what training methodology? Because they're arguing for a constraints led approach mm -hmm. to fix this problem. Mm -hmm. Is that is in your yeah. experience? A hundred percent, because I think one of the things that this approach does, it gives you much more efficient use of time, 
of practice and training time. You're uh, a lot of the time I think is wasted, like um, by things that we we don't really have a clear reason why we're doing it. A lot of the same thing over and over. So I think uh, yeah, that, I think this addresses one of those problems. Like let's get right to it. <laughs> let's get right to what you your issue is right with shooting and or whatever fighting. Um, and so, yeah, I think, it, it, I, you know, it's a way that I use for all the things I do. So I'm biased, obviously, um, in how I think about it. But I think it's a way more efficient use of time. And um, and a lot of things, like, especially when you're dealing. So a lot of things they're talking about here, especially like in combat, is having an opponent or a resistive opponent when you're training like knife defense or something. And a lot of the time we have people together to train, we still train isolated and individual. <laughs> like we're wasting this opportunity for you to be against someone. So uh, yeah, so I, I definitely think it's a more efficient use of time. Okay, and the waste of time thing is important. I'm glad you brought that up because they mentioned in this report, they, they talk about a study by a researcher by the name of Cushion who in 2018, he evaluated officer safety training in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And what Cushion found as a result of, of his study is that 54% of the training time was passive. Now, mm -hmm. and I take that to mean, and maybe there's a research uh, definition of that. But when I hear as a trainer, I hear we've got 54% of time that's passive. That means to me, my students are spending 46% of the time not doing any meaningful training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah, you, there's a lot of good research looking at training kind of diary, examinizing practice. And yeah, if you let people, they'll, they'll work on stuff they're already good at, <laughs> right? Because it's, it's not, it's rewarding, you know, making, doing something really challenging and hard and making a lot of mistakes isn't fun all the time. So yeah, I think, and the same and I see a lot of practices, you know, even with when the coach is running, it's like, oh, because we always do it this way, or that's the way I learned. So there's not, you know, so the term sometimes you'll hear is deliberate practice. Like, what are we trying to work on? What are we trying to get better at? Let's try to maximize that. It doesn't mean you can't have some practices that are more just for uh, giving people confidence or more in sports for more fun. But you do need, if you really want to improve, you really got to focus on you know, ask, why am I doing this drill for? Yeah. Okay. So pushing past those areas of, of comfort. And um, since mm -hmm. you brought it up, uh, let's go down that road for a little bit, because we see often that officers like, to, like we're going to be honest here, especially for in-service training, recruits in the academy, they don't have much of a choice. They're a, a captive audience. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you get officers come for your annual use of force requalification, um, they most of those officers detest that training. Um, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the reason for that is, is because they don't want to look bad. They don't want to make mistakes. And, and, and every agency is different, but we have some cultures in, in agencies where it's, it's looked down on to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so do you see that as uh, like, is that a cultural problem in coaching in sports as well as trying to get your performer? What can we do to help our students feel 
comfortable and supported to push themselves beyond just those little comfortable zones that they like to function in past yeah. the yeah, the, the, that's a great point. And yes, I see this all the time. And sometimes the term we use is called psychological safety, like giving people a safety net that this is safe. So I do a big speech before to I'm like, okay, this is a practice activity I designed to make really hard for you. You're going to struggle. You're going to make mistakes because that's when you get better, right? There's no scouts sitting in the stands. I'm not filming this. This is not a test I'm going to score. I want you to try and explore and do different things and learn, right? So yeah, I think you have to set the stage for that. And it's still still difficult. Like a lot of, like I was just at a conference with NBA and a lot of their players, they sneak off in the off season and work with a trainer separate from the team. And that's when they do all the really hard stuff where they struggle and fail because they don't want to do it in front of the, you know, so it is, it's a big problem, but you're, it really kind of, you have to kind of set the stage as the coach or the trainer that, you know, this is what we expect. I expect you to miss a whole bunch of your shots here because I'm giving you a really challenging thing <laughs> to do and that because we're going to get better through it. Yeah. Yeah, right. And, and, and the, as a law enforcement trainer, the the whole point of that is, you know, to, to kind of allow you to be bad in here. Mm-hmm. So you're not bad out there. Right. This yeah. is this is your learning environment. So you can fix those issues. Yeah, we do that in baseball. Sometimes I move the pitching machine super close. So it's actually throwing harder than they're ever going to face in the game. I'm going to make it hard in practice so it feels easy in the game. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great saying. Great saying. So um, one of the other things they said in this research, they said uh, of concern that Cushion found is that training was piecemeal and disjointed. And like, so what, what do you think that means? What does training look like when it's piecemeal and disjointed? Um, there's, I think what he's talking about is like what we like to do, like obviously learning a new skill is a complicated, like there's it's lots of parts you have to be able to do. And what we typically do is we break it apart, right? We, we take it and separate the, it into, okay, let's just do drawing the gun without shooting it. Um, let's do, do shooting without having to make a decision or like position, you know, go like looking around the corner and, you know, so we piecemeal is when we, we tend to break things into parts and assume that we can put them back together. Right. Um, so we do that, you know, in, in tennis, like baseball, we hit, get you to hit off a tee, right? So you're not having to pick up the ball, flight of the ball. So I think that's what we mean. You tend to do lot, try to break things into parts and then put them back together, which doesn't really work very well. Uh, we like to keep things more whole. Um, just make it easier by, you know, instead of hitting you a ball off a tee in baseball, I'm going to throw a bigger ball to you. So you can still have to see the ball coming and time your swing, but I've made it easier because the ball is bigger. Yeah. Okay, so is that when I hear coaches talk about whole versus part practice and exactly and motor mm-hmm. skills. So mm-hmm. what I'm hearing you say then is, does the research show that when, when you have um, more complex motor skills, is mm-hmm. it better, better to teach those whole rather than fragmenting them into the individual parts? For sure. That's what the bulk of research shows hundred percent. Yeah. Um, keeping things, the particularly like the perceiving the world and acting together 
right? Um, that's in particular really important. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the, the more that the training can involve basically like re task relevant cues then. So you want the environmental cues that you have to perceive, make a decision on, and then and then interact with. Is that mm -hmm. what you're saying? Yeah. Yes. And then, yeah. And then as much as we can keep the whole movements together and like, um, even like there's research into really interesting research from neuroscience that says, you know, you use different parts of your brain. If I gave you a task where you just had to verbally say what you would do in this scenario of watching a video versus actually having to shoot, use actually different parts of your brain to control an action than just saying like a passive perception. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a really important concept. Yeah. Mm, okay. And so that's the piecemeal part. Now, mm -hmm. what about disjointed? What do you think is disjointed training? Um, I'm not quite sure. I, I think we're going back to kind of the, you know, what are we working on? Um, you know, what, what is the goal uh, of the training? I, um, I see a lot of, you know, things I work in where the coaches almost have a plan written out that's not really a responsive at all to what they in front of them. <laughs> like, what are the people you're training struggling with? What, you know, what are they, so being kind of adaptive, I, I think that's maybe what they're talking about. I'm not quite sure exactly what they mean by that. Okay. Yeah. You know, one of the things that is not uncommon in in law enforcement, especially in in academies, this is, is to see what we often refer to as siloed training. Mm -hmm. So we would have, you know, we're going to do a big block of maybe baton skills, and then we'll do a big block of takedowns and a big block of something else. Um, but often there's not a lot of integration or interleaving of those skills together. And so, you know, for me as a law enforcement trainer, when I read that disjointed, that's immediately what came to to my mind is just a lack of connective tissue between a whole system approach of dealing with yeah yes yeah i yeah i think that's a good way to think of it uh i see that a lot in sports like people giving you know the same athlete works with done some different trainers and they get different messages and kind of conflicting things and yeah it's a difficult problem yeah okay so one of the other things they found rob was that uh 77 of the training time was actually uh, spent on activities that had no direct relevance to operational demands. So, mm -hmm. I don't know. That was shocking. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I think, like I said, a lot of it is, I, I'm not sure how they define that, like what is relevant or not, but um, I guess it's not surprising. Like I said, a lot of practice, right, we just, is not purposeful like what is it trying to achieve exactly and, and focuses on transfer yeah but um yeah that's a that's a very high number isn't it yeah yeah so because shouldn't shouldn't our understand like isn't that the starting point of designing training is what's the operational demand mm -hmm. what's the yeah. need and so for i i recall i remember once when my my daughter played a lot of years of of soccer um and I remember always watching these drills that they would do. They'd have to dribble the ball around mm -hmm. the cones, and mm -hmm. and and I'm I, and I reflect on that, going, but they they never do that ever 
in a oh. game. Yeah, that's so that's like the 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 breaking down part training. Like the idea is we need to teach you to handle the ball and we'll teach you first and then we'll teach you how to handle the ball and get around an opponent later. And we'll be able to piece it back together, which yeah, it doesn't work very well. Um, yeah, that's one of my least favorite, <laughs> like dribbling around cones is because um, there's no information there and it's no. So, yeah, I think, you know, of what depending on, I think, how you find define that test relevant. But if you're looking at things that have, you know, the same qualities as the environment you're training for. Yeah, it's probably pretty low. <laughs> like a lot of. For example, you know, I coach tennis sometimes, and I see a lot of a lot of the activities they're tr they're helping you learn a forehand by tossing a ball to underhand and having you hit it into an empty court, right? So you're you're not hitting a ball that was hit to you. There's no there's no opponent you're trying to hit it away from. Um, so yeah, things like there's lots of those kind of things if 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 you're looking at kind of how well it represents the actual thing you're training for. Right, right. Okay. And so, you know, one of the things that they said here is that primary training methods that are used in their study were what they called linear. And I think we've already addressed what linear training is. We've spoken mm -hmm. about that. And you've given us some examples of, of what linear type of, of training would be. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, we just spoke about one, right? The whole soccer uh, dribbling between cones. Mm -hmm a linear technique based type mm -hmm. of approach and and they're clearly not supportive of that uh and so um the the other thing that they mentioned is that uh they mentioned a concern reflecting poor performance are trainer centered teaching methods now i wasn't clear how, what that is what what is it what is a trainer centered teaching method and i i guess by by the very definition, there's another type, which is performer-centered teaching method. Am I right? Like, Yeah. Um, okay. so, yeah. So I think what they're talking about is what I was talking about before, you know, the idea where I show up as a trainer and here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to work on. I have it all pre-planned curriculum rather than focusing on athlete-centered, performer-centered, what they need. And based on, and also I think it's the one size fits all too. Like I'm, I know all the answers. <laughs> Here's exactly how you do it rather than kind of adjusting to who you're working with and, and their specific needs. So, yeah, I think that's the basic idea of kind of coach centered versus athlete centered coaching. Yeah. Okay. So let me, let me give you a, uh, an example. So let's say, I'm a combatives trainer and I've got a class of brand new recruits that are coming to me. And today I'm going to be teaching them how to do balance displacement takedown. So this is mm -hmm. brand new to them. They don't know how to do it. And I'm going to be teaching them some, some principles and techniques on how to disrupt somebody's balance. So if I'm a, a trainer centered instructor what what would my teaching style look like versus a student-centered instructor because you gave the example like we need to know where each of our student is at and be, uh -huh. and be adaptable to them but what happens if i've got a whole class of 12 students who this is their first and i've got to teach them 
these skills? Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, that's a good, so I'm trying to think of a good in, 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 so I think one thing is, is trying to, so I think demonstration is a good way to, is get around that, like, so without having, giving people explicit instruction about what they have to be doing, um, but I guess, you know, uh, to me would be, like, a coach center way would be if if you if you were trying to teach something like that, but it, it was clear that there was some other thing that they needed first, <laughs> or they else he could be working on. Um, like I, I'll give you an example. Like I do tennis sometimes, and um, I did a practice one time. I had written down, okay, we're going to work on like serving volley and or getting to the net and doing these things. And we were playing a game before, and all the people, a whole bunch of the students I had were having trouble serving accurately so I saw that as a moment to scratch my plan <laughs> and let's work on serving that's what it, it was like a moment kind of teachable moment kind of so I think being more re, just being reactive so I, I think you know when you're working with new athletes you're right you need some sort of plan you you pr it probably changes as you get higher up right where the athlete you're more sensitive to what the athlete's doing you probably need to be fairly coach-centered with new because you you got to get them started, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I guess even in that, um, you know, if I so there are certain techniques that maybe I as a trainer, because I've used them for years, so I have certain balance displacement techniques that I like to use. Mm -hmm. So if I'm an instructor-centered teacher. I might really focus on my personal preferences of those techniques rather than, um, you know, if I'm student centered, how about if I talk to them about here's the basic principles of balance displacement balance exists in the vestibular system here. And so in order, the fastest way to disrupt it is to get the head off the shoulders, shoulders off the hips. So think about turning that, that, that line as quickly as you can off of that. Here's some uh, principles you can use to apply that and then put them into some very uh, ecological drills where they've got to learn to apply this on their own. Would, would, would that be getting starting to be even a closer application of student-centered versus instructor-centered? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. I don't, you know, this is, a, is kind of a distinction I don't talk too much about, like I think, but yeah, I think so. I think getting it more um yeah getting it in the situation allowing the person allowing the environment to do some of the coaching for you like so i think also a coach really coach centered coach would want to be doing isolated things instead of having people figure stuff out on their own by by doing constraints and things like that yeah yeah okay because i think you know one of the things that law enforcement trainers can mistakenly measure their success by is getting their students to replicate what it is they've wanted them to do in in training, and and that's actually one of the things that that Cushion said that that the majority of the training methods expected the, the students to watch and imitate their trainers, but they didn't actually learn how to solve problems. They just learned how to imitate exactly. the training. Yes, yeah, that's very common. Yeah, yeah, and so doing something like that what would the the performance results be operationally for an officer who who is trained under that method 
that's usually when you get the poor transfer and you get the trouble with decision making. You get like uh, skills kind of falling apart under pressure because you haven't you you you've given the person the solution and they really don't. Okay, how do I use this when the you know something else happens? Or I'm going around a corner and I can't see clearly, and so um, yeah, too too focused on kind of giving the answer makes them not usually doesn't go transfer well to to good decision making and things like that okay so one of the uh, uh the things with the cla approach that they talk about here the constraints led approach and since this is the the method that the authors uh recommend that tr that trainers take is the constraints led approach so the um on uh one of the pages of the let me just get to the right page here. Um, they say that on page 929 of, of their report, the last paragraph, they say the white, widely cited constraints-led approach successfully applied in sports science and sports offers an innovative pedagogical approach that could be introduced into the law enforcement domain. The constraints-led approach offers a stimulating framework for training practice, as well as content decisions within the educational curriculum of police trainers. Since constraints-led approach pursues the goal of narrowing the gap between training and application context through the integration of theory, science, and knowledge from high-quality applied practice. Well, that's a that's a big, mm -hmm. that's a big, big mouthful, Rob. Yeah. But so, give us the give us the cold notes. What are they advocating for there? I think they're they're uh, basically saying the you know training police training and these kind of skills training, although it's you know different consequences and things like that, it has a lot of the same kind of elements of sports, being you know the complex environment, the need for decision making, need for adaptability. And I think they're saying, you know, that constraints that approach, you know, it, it remains to be tested and people to use it, but it makes sense that it would work in that environment as well. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So, um, they they you they they uh, set a phrase there that I actually um, I believe I read almost verbatim at some point in your book on how we learn to move. And that was it on page 930. And they said the premise of the constraints-led approach is that human behavior is constraints-led. That is, it's conditioned by the interplay of the individual and environmental factors which act as constraints. So um, expand on that a little bit, Rob, because I've heard you say uh, several times and in your podcast, you really stress this point that all human behavior is ecological. Mm -hmm. and, and and so what do you, what do you mean by that because i've had people ask me that because i'm trying to encourage police trainers to adopt more of an ecological approach to training and look at constraints led approach and they go what do you mean by ecological yeah so so that that's a word yeah that comes from kind of uh, james gibson ecological psychology is the idea that all behavior happens in a context in an ecology in an environment and we can't understand why you did something unless we understand what environment happened in, right? The ecology. Um, and so we need to train that way. We need to keep the context there as much as possible, the environment that you're actually, and we need, 
want that reason you shoot here and not there to be driven by the same information in training as it does in the you know in a in a conflict environment. Um, so that's the idea of the ecological because we the traditional approach is taking an athlete out of the environment, right? Dribbling around fake cones. <laughs> like that's not the environment. You're right. We don't play soccer against little pieces of orange rubber, right? So we're ignoring what the actual environment is that you have to act in. So the ecological approach, we're trying to flip that <laughs> and say, no, you got to understand the environment and make sure you keep the important parts of the environment in practice. Okay. So the, this is really important point, Rob, because when you look at a lot of police training, so let me just uh, focus on firearms training for a second. If you have, in say, in, in an average academy, you've got between 80 and 100 hours of firearms training, a large percentage of that training is spent on a static firing range, standing in a line, not moving, and drawing and shooting on a paper target that turns and so the the contextual relevance of the training environment is completely not representative of the task environment. And, mm -hmm. and so then, like, it shouldn't be a shocker, right, to us as trainers if our students under life-threatening stress conditions are pushing forward a response. Mm -hmm. But all those hours of training has been in an environment that is completely antithetical to what the task yeah. environment is. Yeah. Human performance is going to suffer. Yes, exactly. We want to, you're right. We're not adapt. We haven't learned to adapt to the actual conditions where you have to perform and, and adjust. I mean, we learned this one way to do this under ideal, perfect conditions. Um, there's some great work by, um, a person named Raoul Odegens in uh, the Netherlands where he looked at um, shooting performance. You know, people that were incredibly accurate on the shooting range, what he did was test them by having a, a person that was shooting soap pellets at them while they were shooting. So there was like a, an opponent almost and they could get, I guess they're painful, right? <laughs> and so in their shooting performance went, right? Because they never practiced under having to deal with that anxiety, that threats, the consequence. So um, it's not surprising when you go in the, the situations that you struggle, right? Because we didn't prepare you for that. So what I'm hearing you say then is context isn't just sort of like the technical demands of the environment. It's also the psychological demands. Yeah. yeah. Um, the expression sometimes we used is hot versus cold. Not in terms of temperature, we're talking about emotion. Right, most training takes a quick in very cold. Right, you're not over, you're not pressured, you're not. There's no real consequences if you miss. There's no, uh, you're not angry. You know, whereas actual <clears throat> context is hot. <laughs> right, all these emotions and pressure and anxiety, you have to learn to deal with them. That's something that I've worked on a lot in sports with athletes that kind of choke under pressure. And one of the, it sounds obvious, but one of the best ways to do it is pre get pressure into practice, even if it's not the same kind of pressure. Um, just get you used to that and get you being able to learn how to adjust and adapt to it. 
Okay, now you use the phrase pressure. Is there a reason that you don't use stress? Are those, because uh, police trainers will often talk about stress training. Yeah, I think in the way you're saying it, we're we meaning the same thing. Sometimes I use like stress as your reaction to versus pressure as kind of the external, but I think we're using it in the same way. Yeah. Um, the uh, But I like to, one of the ones, so in sports, I think another, the, one of the reasons we fail under pressure is we get, we get that internal focus of attention. We start worrying about what our body's doing and we're doing it right. So what I, what pressure training or stress training can do is get you used to it and resist that. Cause you want to just do the same thing. Like the key to handling stress is just do the same thing you did when the non-stressful situation, but as much as possible, you want to move the same way. Uh, you don't want to let it change how you're moving. Um, so that's what we kind of do in practice. Yeah. Okay, great. Now, uh, they, they talk about, so with the application of the constraints-led approach in police training, they mention a phrase and they say the competent use of behavioral degrees of freedom leading to functional variability and problem solving. <laughs> well, I'm sure you you know exactly what they <laughs> But so help. yeah, that's a, that's a big mouthful. So the, the degrees of freedom is going back to that what I was talking about the options. Like when you first learn a skill like shooting, you have degrees of freedom is the options, right? Uh, the different ways I could shoot, and uh, so there's in, infinite different ways I could hold a gun, extend my arm, right? That's what we mean by degrees of freedom is the options, and um, what the functional variability is the idea that you actually can't just have one way to do things, right? Um, there's not one way to shoot a gun. You know, that's like against all the <laughs> traditional training, but you need to be able to shoot it differently under because all the conditions are changing. Um, um, you know, I need to be able to adjust and adapt my movement slight, so not by a huge amount all the time, but the idea I need functional, so useful variability, change in the way I move. So the, the key to performing well is not consistency. It's being able to adjust to the conditions is, is kind of that idea of it within the ecological approach. Okay, yeah. you, just, you just said something that's completely counterintuitive. <laughs> the key to performing well is not consistency. Yeah, so the, the terminology this that we use is called, the phrase sometimes we use is called repetition without repetition. So you want consistency in the outcome. I want to consistently hit my target with the shot. But the idea is you don't do that by consistently moving in exactly the same way, right? To consistently hit a target, I need to move slightly differently depending on the conditions, you know, how tired I am, what the environment conditions, the light level, what posture I'm in, what angle I'm at. So repeating and out consistency and outcome yes but it's not produced by the traditional ideas we get consistency outcome by having this motor program of how to shoot that we just pull out and it happens the same way every time that's why we repeat right repetition is so we can get this one way to do something down so we could do it the same way every time and the key idea in the eco functional variability is the idea that you don't actually want that. <laughs> you want to be able to do it slightly differently. And, and also because you are going to, you know, you're going to 
extend your arms slightly later than you did the last time. You need to be able to adjust for that. So that's that's the idea. It's a it is a very relevant um, um, idea, very kind of counterintuitive to most people. Yeah. Very counterintuitive, but the more you think about it, it makes perfect sense from a lot of different perspectives because yeah. every every shooter, for example, every officer is an incredibly complex, varied milieu of a different mm. person mm -hmm. with different biomechanics, different movement patterns. Um, and so, and again, then you add in, like you said, every not every situation they're going to be in, they're going to be moving. They might be moving laterally, falling mm -hmm. forward on their back, shooting mm -hmm. one-handed, shooting two-handed, shooting a moving target, um, moving while shooting. And so mm -hmm. the more... Yeah the more variability that they are exposed to and have to sort of uh, this whole degrees of freedom, yeah. finding their own movement patterns. Different options, yeah. Each of those, that's preferable to spending. To having just one way to do things, yeah. Okay, okay. And, and that's that. That's good. And, and I want to ask a follow-up question onto that because um, they, they talk about uh, individual affordances mm -hmm. in this whole discussion about degrees of, of freedom and functional variability. And then they throw in this individual affordances. Um, what, what does that mean? Yeah. So that's a good, so a lot of terms in here, isn't there? Uh, affordances, affordances is an opportunity for you to act on the environment. So if I'm, have someone, a, a kind of a, a, an opponent or someone I'm trying to subdue, what are the opportunities I have? Can I take them down to the ground? Can I do this move? Can I do that move? And obviously the opportunities are going to depend on them. How tall are they? How far away are they? And on me, what are my capabilities? So affordances are opportunities for action, right? And they're basically decisions, right? what should I do in this situation based on what I see, you know? And, and so you want the person to, you want a, uh, like a police officer to learn to predict, pick up affordances. What are the, what can I do here? Right. Without having to remember someone, having someone tell them when this happens, do this, because think about how many of those you would need <laughs> for all possible scenarios that could happen to a police officer. Impossible. It's impossible to make a rule book of if this happens, then do that for a police officer. There's too many things going on. So they need to learn themselves, okay, this will work here from what I see, right? And that's called perceiving affordances, opportunities for action. Okay, so, you know, and, and, and would an example of that be, so one of the things that I, I've done for years is looked at use of force events and I, I write an uh, opinion on like an expert opinion on whether the use of force was consistent with training proportionate and all that type of stuff. But sometimes I will see what I consider to be a brilliant use of a tactic that has never like the, and often an officer will be critiqued by other, by, by others saying, well, but we don't train that. Mm -hmm. We never trained him to do that technique. And an example of that we had, uh, an officer was faced with a guy on a busy downtown street with a knife. He mm -hmm. was in mental crisis, but he was threatening people with this knife. 
And the officer, as he came down the street, he used his car and pinned the guy up against a, a parking meter. And he's stuck there between the car, but he can't go anywhere. And so now mm-hmm. they had all the time in the world to deal with this. And I thought, that was that was like, how did you think <laughs> of that so fast? So would that be an example of like an individual affordance? There's a situation mm-hmm. rapidly evolving. I see an opportunity for action and I apply a principle um, even though it may, I mean, 100%, yeah, and this is something you actually see in the constraints that approach work in sports. Like, there's some really good work in soccer, um, and also in martial martial arts. That it's not a word you would usually apply to police officers, but that's a, a creative solution, right? Creativity coming up with solutions that are unique and not like pre programmed or something told you you do in this situation. So in sports, you see people come up with it, different moves for striking. In soccer, they you know they come up with different patterns, and um, because uh, the pra- practicing in this way, like a constraints that approach, is encouraging that, right? We're not telling you what to do; we're giving you situations where you have to figure out what to do. So it's not surprising people are going to come up with really unique um, solutions. Yeah, that's a good example. Yeah. Okay. So is that tied then? Because one of the things they say in this report, they place a huge emphasis on the importance of the students themselves in training, having to learn their own, they they use the term functional solutions to problems. Mm-hmm. And so exactly. Rob, I often hear you mention the term self-organization. Mm-hmm. So it, is that sort of the same thing, like their own functional solutions, exactly. self-organization? Yeah, exactly. I'm figuring out on my own what I have to do when the there's a, a sun shining in my face. And I'm trying to see some assailant or something. Um, I have to figure out on my own how to deal with that. A coach can guide you, like as an instructor, you can like guide, like try this, <laughs> or or put a constraint to 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 help them. But ideally, you want them to um, come up, figure out their own way to deal with that and self-organize because the advantage of that is when the sun's in a different angle or it's a different light, they haven't learned one thing to do. They've learned how to solve a problem. When they get a new problem, it's going to make them more likely to come up with a new uh, solution for that. Okay. And so what, what the authors are, are they telling us then? And is this what you would agree that the, it's the, this ecological based constraints led approach leads to performers having more of that, that you use the term ingenuity, creative problem solving, self-organization. Um, is that the result that we can expect from a constraints letter? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. We get the, the word I use is, is adaptable. Right? They can adjust their behavior to the environment, changing environment around them. Right. Um, Instead of like the traditional approach, like the military approaches, we basically we kind of almost wanted to make people like robots, right? So they're through training, they're not a, they're just pulling out what they were trained to do in this scenario, like automatically, like a robot would, you know. So they're not really deciding on their own, picking up their own information. Um, the problem is. How do you program every possible, <laughs> you need a program for every possible scenario then that could happen. And what happens when one of those scenarios, it's not one of those ones you were trained for. Um, so the idea of the ecological approach is we're, we're, tri- we're developing problem solvers. 
Like they're they're able to pick up information from the world around them and adjust how they act accordingly. It's not always going to be perfect, obviously, but it's more likely they're going to come up with something that's effective um, in an unusual situation. Yeah. Um, and I think we saw that in the, the study from last time, right? It was the surprise attacks. Um, and the, the example here is a good, so I coach volleyball and one of the coaches I work with was telling me that they, they were playing a team that, that was way better in terms of physical, they were all taller um, and they end up losing the match, but they won every point where the, the it kind of was a scramble where the the set went off because every point where, where it went into chaos, their team won because they practiced chaos, right? They practiced how to solve problems and the other team struggled. When everything went perfectly, then they were more, they were a better team. But um, so that's the kind of situation we're training, chaos really, yeah. Okay, well, you're really making me think here. <laughs> um, um, because we have so many areas in law enforcement training where we focus on per perfect performance. Mm -hmm. and perfect outcome mm -hmm. and you know for an example of that would be high risk vehicle stops where we've got uh, uh, maybe an armed offender or a suspected armed person in a vehicle and we teach how to bring police vehicles in and do a high risk vehicle stop and everybody has their pre-assigned positions and their roles which which is good mm -hmm. but i think the problem is the vast majority of these drills and scenarios we do go just according to plan yeah Nothing yeah. ever goes chaotic mm -hmm. like in your volleyball. Yeah. Example. And that's that miss it. Yeah. Miss hits the ball. Yeah. yeah. What do we do? Yeah. Right. And so yeah. what we see then is when suddenly something doesn't go according to Hoyle is the officers are, are vapor locked like cognitively yeah. and they they're so slow to try to adapt and solve problems because they haven't been trained in that environment. Yeah. The comparison I used, and I think I used in my book, was, uh, you know, uh, between a marching band and a flock of birds. Like a marching band at halftime, everything goes, they're choreographed. They're told exactly what to do. If one of the people in the band turns the wrong way at the 50-yard line, it's going to be a disaster, right? They're all going to collide with each other because no one knows what I'm supposed to, what am I supposed to do when the trumpet player's coming at me? Nobody told me, which way am I supposed to go? Whereas birds... They self-organize. They just adjust to what their neighbor's doing. No one told them where to fly. They're just adjusting on the fly. So they they can they can handle one bird decides to go right for no reason, they'll all adjust. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's exactly what we're we're going for is you know, what happens when everything doesn't go if everything goes perfectly, yeah, then maybe the kind of telling everybody exactly the plan will work, but if something doesn't, then we will, you know, that's where we want the adaptability. Boy, that bird example is perfect, Rob. <laughs> um, I, I remember teaching building clearing to recruit. So we teach them how to go, go enter rooms, enter buildings, flow down hallways, go through doors. And, and there's specific techniques that we teach them how to hook around doors and keep moving. And as long as everybody does what they're mm -hmm. expected to do, it's all good. But I remember so many times one officer would go through and would either see something that they would capture their attention and they would then focus on that. But it was unexpected by everybody else on the team coming in and they were, they were hitting and, and <laughs> they, yeah. they, they couldn't adapt. 
Yeah. And, and the reason it occurred to me they couldn't adapt is because they didn't understand the principle. They yes, just need the exactly. technique. And that's a great point. Like it's it's not like we're saying just let them do anything when they're clearing a building. Like just you as a you as an instructor still know what they need, what the principles are being sight lines and like it's just allow them to kind of figure out around that and guide them to to these principles, right? Rather than telling them exactly where you should be. Um, sometimes I call it in, in sports, I call this conditions, not positions, right? I want you to understand the conditions that we need to meet to be successful, not where you need to be or what your how bent your arm needs. You figure that out on your own. But we have to satisfy certain principles or conditions to be successful though we can't just do anything right where we're going to get in trouble yeah right right yeah. so the, the principle would be is the, the the underlying foundational principles are important mm -hmm. but we also want to put like you said earlier put the pressure on of unexpected like mm -hmm. we talk about affordances for action is adjusting those constraints led criteria so now you can't do this. You thought you were going to do this, but now I've done something in the environment and you can't. Yeah. So like, I'm sure, I'm not sure if this is one like it in clearing the building, like spacing, like you want to keep, uh, most ports and teams, you want to keep effective spacing. And how do we adjust to that when the, this part is blocked or there's something, you know, how we, so we can't do that by knowing exactly where to go because, you know, that's not very flexible. It's very, so I, the other term I use is, when you tell people what exactly what to do, it's very fragile, right? It works until the conditions change, then it smashes into pieces, right? Because there's no flexibility with it. Um, you haven't taught them how to decide what to do on their own based on what they see, right? And I know in police, like police officer and military, that's kind of scary, right? <laughs> uh, giving autonomy to, a lot of autonomy to the person um, versus having rule more rules and you know constraints yeah yeah right so okay uh we're, we're closing rapidly on the end of our session here but one of the things i want you to help uh flesh out for us is the idea of biological degeneracy they use this term they say the cla refers to the principle of biological degeneracy so mm -hmm. <laughs> help us yeah yeah, yeah, that's a big one. That's the idea of having multiple different ways to do things, basically. Um, de degeneracy is actually throughout the nature and the body that you can do the same thing with different parts. So the within your body, like your there's not one uh, like your genes can form go together to form different uh, amino acids and things like that. So. Um, it's kind of having different that it, it, fundamentally it means having different ways to achieve the same thing, right? So the repetition without repetition idea again. I, I can be accurate shooter if if my arm if I hurt my arm in a situation, how can I adapt and adjust? Degeneracy is having another solution there, and our, our it seems to be throughout nature and through body that we have more than one way to do it. We have kind of this more than one way to do things. But yeah, it's a fancy term for, for that. Okay. Yeah. And and it's not a negative term. I, I, I no. guess. No. Yeah, because so, when we yeah. degenerate, it's like, yeah. well, that's, what um, that's what, it took me a while to figure this out. Why, why do they call it degenerate? So de obviously degenerate is something, someone that's different than normal, right? 
So the idea is you have a solution that's different than normal. The example I always give, like in tennis, being able to do the between the legs shot is, to get a ball is like a degenerate solution because that's not a normal way you hit a tennis ball. <laughs> like, but being able to pull that out when you need it, right, is 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 very useful, right? So it's something that's different than the normal way you do things. I think that's okay. why they use that term, but it's a very weird term. I agree. Very yeah. weird, but that it's very tough, horrible. It's, yeah, it's good perform. With we, we would call that good performance if we see an athlete or a performer. Yeah, doing or something that's or, yeah. yeah. Okay, um, we'd say, we say we wouldn't say that guy's a degenerate. Yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> we get okay. in trouble for that. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, so all right, Rob, help. Uh, what recommendations? do you think need to come out of this paper? So you've got law enforcement trainers who are listening to this. They're hearing about the constraints led approach and the ec ec ecology and um, what recommendations, like give us a list think, of things we should consider. I think, you know, it depends on kind of where you're at with this. I think if you're just starting in with it, I think thinking, just trying, can I do an activity where I just vary a constraint and not tell them everything to do? and kind of see if they figure it out on their own, um, how much they can figure it out on their own. Um, so I think that's kind of where I like to start with people that are used to more traditional coaching. Um, like in, in martial arts, for example, I always say, well, just tell them, okay, your goal is to get that person down to the ground and don't say anything else <laughs> and just see what happens, you know, and then you can constrain it more by time or or whatever. Um, and then I think the useful thing if you start to get into this is to do a little bit about what they have in the paper where you you kind of put that table where you start to say, oh, what can I vary? You know, what could I vary in a on a shooting range? What could I vary? The distance of the target, size of the target, light level, angle, body position, time, and kind of think about all these different things you can vary and what they might be useful for. Right. If I gave a person less time to shoot, what might that encourage them to do differently? So, so that's the way I try to to think about it. Okay, yeah. Rob, is there anywhere that um, a trainer could go to get, like, is there resources that will help somebody get into this uh, training and coaching in the constraints led method? Is there courses that trainers can take? What what resources would you recommend for that? Um, not there's not anything really specific to there's some there's a series of books coming out now that are specific to specific sports. Uh, so I have a baseball one that I'm editing right at the moment, and there's a golf one. Um, but I think mostly is you know just I think you can find some videos on uh, online of people like in martial and martial arts and MMA. There's some good videos on how people use constraints in different activities. So I think it's mostly finding examples and kind of getting a, thinking about how you might do something like that. Yeah. But there's no, uh, I don't know that there's specific resources yet on like using constraints that approach for um, police training. <laughs> Not quite yet. Like there's just, this paper is just kind of introducing the idea, right? And, and yeah. trying to get people to think about it. Yeah. yeah, but I guess I don't mean so much even in police training, but let's say if a, a viewer wanted to go get some kind of certification, even at a coaching level in a constraints-led constraints approach, is there any opportunities for that? 
Sorry, what's that? I missed the broke. Uh... They wanted to get any kind of, of training or certification in, in constraints-led coaching, even from the sporting realm. Are there are there opportunities for that? Um, not really any like official constraints. I think there's there's a growing body of kind of groups that um I will offer training. There's like um one group called Emergence. They're kind of developing uh coaches in this mold. Um, they kind of offer courses where you can learn about the basic principles and, and stuff. And, you know, I myself, <laughs> like things like we're doing, like where I do kind of consulting with people, uh, but there's no, and they're not quite anything official certification, things like that quite yet. Okay, great. Thanks. Rob, is there anything that you wanted to just add in, in summary before we say goodbye for this session? Um, no, I think I think that's you know that's a kind of a good introduction to the this concept. I you know it's something I really use a lot myself, and I think just trying you know okay let's try one activity where in if you're really kind of more a different view and then see what happens. Like I think um, you'll see that um, for example if you the example I gave where you just ask someone to do a takedown without giving any kind of instructions the the change in the performer you'll see right away they get all nervous and. And it gets more. <laughs> you'll see. Wow, that that's seems more like what they're gonna have to do in real things. So that I just kind of play with it. It's something you have to play with. There's you have to learn and try different things to to be good at it, for sure. Yeah, and be confident in the process. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Great. Well, Rob, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate you. You're welcome. On the show again, and appreciate what you do once again for the for the viewers. I strongly encourage you to subscribe to the Perception Action podcast. Take advantage of the great information that uh, Dr. Gray has as that as a resource available to you. And um, Rob, we look forward to having you back on again next time. Yeah, my pleasure, Chris.